This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted to have Dr. David Perlmutter. He's a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Good morning. It's so nice to have you today. I'm just delighted to be here with you, Cynthia. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have been reading your books for many years, and you were probably the very first person that introduced to me. I'm a traditional allopathic trained nurse practitioner. So the concept of how important gut brain physiology and connection is. So thank you for all of the work that you've done. But I really wanted to spend today talking and unpacking your new book. I have been thoroughly enjoying Brainwash. And for any of the listeners that are familiar with your most recent book, it's really incredibly timely given the current state of affairs, not just here in the United States, but worldwide with this growing pandemic. So I'm curious, I know that you wrote this book with you and your son, who's also a physician, but what was the initial impetus? Obviously, you probably did not have a crystal ball. You would have no idea that we would be in this you know, nearly year-long True. pandemic. Uh, we had no idea that there'd be the pandemic or that there would be as much division as we see around us now. But you know, the, we, the book was published you know, a year ago, and so we were not prescient in terms of you know, the situation that we're in currently, but the concepts were valid then and they're more valid now. And what I think provoked us to write the book in a good way is actually in this very room where I am right now, we were having a discussion about what challenges us most as practitioners of medicine. And it's, we really both came to a place of understanding that the biggest challenge we have it's not that we don't know a lot of stuff. We know a lot of stuff. We sure don't know as much as we'd like, but we know a lot of information. We do our best to transmit that information as you and I are doing right now to others. But the real challenge is the lack of follow through, the acquiescence on the part of the patient. And it, you know, the degree of follow through is really very low. About 50 to 80% of the information that clinicians give to patients is typically not uh, followed. So that's the challenge. And you know, what typically happens is we label those patients as being, quote, non-compliant. They're not complying with our recommendations and something's wrong with that person because we've done our very best to tell them now that you're type 2 diabetic, by diabetic, here's what you need to be doing in terms of your diet and why don't you do it? Every time you come back, your blood sugars are higher and you're gaining weight. Something is wrong with you. And it becomes a blame game, not just in terms of the clinician to the patient, but it certainly becomes a blame game in terms of when that patient goes home and looks in the mirror. You know, it's self-castigation. Why can't I X? Why can't I exercise, sleep better, uh, eat the diet that my doctor has recommended? And we realize that it's time to stop that. It's time to recognize that there are some brain substrates. There is hard wiring in the brain that relates to how we make our decisions. Either we decide to do things right now, it's what I want, world be damned, myself be damned, or do we make decisions based upon thinking it through, thinking of uh, how will my decision right now affect me immediately, but also how will this decision play out tomorrow, next week, lifelong, and even beyond that, and importantly, how will the decisions I make affect other people 
affect uh, my community, affect the planet upon which we live. We call that empathy, thinking of how our actions play out in the lives of other people. And we learned by studying this, and it became a very fascinating uh, uh, project, that there are two fairly distinct areas of the brain that deal with each type of decision-making. On the one hand, we have a very primitive part of the brain called the amygdala that is involved in the impulsivity type of decision-making. I want that jelly donut right now, darn it, end of story, I'm going to eat it. Yeah, it's you know highly refined carbohydrates, ultra-processed this and that, full of who knows what, but I want it and I want it now. It sort of sounds like a five-year-old, doesn't it? On the other hand, you know, that's for me, it's a very narcissistic approach to decision-making and really a narcissistic approach to the worldview. It's all about me, the rest of the world be damned. We're going to frack, we're going to use Roundup on you know, the crops, whatever, because we want it and we want it now. Versus another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex up behind the forehead. And that is really a gift that we have as humans. Other animals have a prefrontal cortex, but our prefrontal cortex takes up a third of our whole cerebral cortex, the top part of the brain. The next best is the chimpanzee where it's about 17%. But so we have this area of the brain that allows us to say, oh, take a minute here. Let's think about how this is going to play out, what it's going to be like tomorrow because you decided to do this today. How might this affect other people and really allows us to understand how these decisions play out in the long run and also allows us to make more complex behavioral changes. We call it executive function or executive decisions to bring in all kinds of nuances to bear on how we make our decisions. And that is, again, part of the functionality of this other part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. Now, most importantly, what we discovered is that this prefrontal cortex, this area behind your forehead, exerts control over that more primitive part of the brain, the amygdala. We call that top-down control. Basically, it is having the adult in the room, whereby the childhood brain wants to do this, and I want to do it now, and that's it. We want to bring on board the top-down control, let the parent come into the room and say, yeah, you know, I know you want to stay up all night and do whatever you want to do, but it's, you're not going to feel well tomorrow. You're not going to be, you'll be cranky or whatever. So this, this connectivity then that is so highly valuable, this top-down control, the connectivity whereby one part of the brain, prefrontal cortex, exercises control over the more primitive part of the brain that is impulsive and self-centered. And it's this connection that is threatened by so many of our lifestyle choices today, the food we eat, the lack of sleep that we get, our lack of exercise, our lack of socialization, our lack of contact with nature, our desire not to do things like meditation, for example. All of these things play in to fostering a brain that thinks only of ourselves, that thinks only of making decisions for right now, and really becomes a very isolationist view. So that was our premise that was uh, developed, as I say, right here in this room. And as we got into it, you can imagine how exciting that was because, you know, until then, we have been giving advice like yourself, giving out information about what the decisions should be. But now we're taking it to a higher order kind of playing field in terms of how do we make those decisions in the first place, whatever they are. 
they may be different types of recommendations, whether you're going to recommend somebody go keto or gluten-free or vegan or whatever it may be. The whole notion is whatever we as healthcare practitioners are recommending, that the idea of giving people tools to stick to these decisions we found to be really empowering. I can only imagine. And if I recall, and my background is not neurology, but I do recall that there's a point at which the prefrontal cortex is fully developed. And so you have teenagers and young adults that probably their brains are still kind of evolving, if you will. And I would imagine in children, teens, very young adults, that their brains are actually more susceptible to damage from some of the things you've alluded to if they're not doing. And and I would imagine that the influence of electronics and things like that may have a detrimental impact on this evolution. Is that correct? Well, without question. And, you know, there are lifestyle choices that people can make and anyone can make that will keep that disconnection going strong, even into adulthood. What we've learned and we talk about in Brainwash is the, the mechanism that's involved in destroying that connection, which we so desperately need, that top-down control. One of the powerful mechanisms that threatens that connection is inflammation. So inflammation brought on by any number of our lifestyle choices will lock us into having that childhood brain that thinks only of oneself, uh, that remains impulsive throughout adulthood. And, you know, we certainly see plenty of examples of people uh, that we know of who make decisions that are, oh, I hear a dog barking. We we put our dog, I always put my dog away for podcasts, but had I known he would have been sitting right here. But anyhow, so the good news is, the empowering part of the story is that when we recognize in ourselves or in others that our decision-making isn't where we want it to be, our worldview isn't what we want it to be, we notice we're self-centered and want to be more compassionate and empathetic towards others, that we can make that happen. We can absolutely bring that prefrontal cortex online, hopefully back online, because it was online before, but if it never was, it can be brought online by simply re-engaging that connection. And that's basically the heart and soul of brainwash. It's how do we reconnect? How do we dissolve this, what we call in the book, disconnection syndrome? Because the disconnection not only threatens our decision-making, that's how we got started on the journey, but it threatens our ability to engage empathy. It threatens our ability to see things from another person's perspective and recognize that we don't have all the answers. And ultimately, that's really very important because it allows the sharing of ideas as opposed to locking into one ideology. And when we share ideas, we come up with novel solutions and we move the ball down the field. That's progress. I'm going to call it like it is. And we've had for many, many years a lot of division in our government. I'm not going to take sides here, but you know, people who run for office often say, what I'm going to try to do when I'm elected is reach across the aisle. Now, I think that's great, but I submit that what we should choose as a goal is getting rid of the aisle. Uh, We shouldn't have this division, a physical division between people who think one way and people who think another way. We should assign seats based on the alphabet or, or drawing numbers in a hat, whatever it is. And now you're sitting next to somebody, hopefully distance appropriately, who has probably a different ideology than you do, and you're going to talk. And 
you know, there may be people who want to convince me that the world is flat. I don't believe it right now, but I'm going to be willing to listen to why you believe that as opposed to strengthening that division between the two aisles or the two groups and saying, we're going to vote along party lines and we're not going to have any discussion. We're only going to discuss what we believe. And, you know, it goes well beyond government. It goes to the interactions that we have with other countries, the interactions that we have with our neighbors who live on the opposite side of the fence that separates our yards and have a different frame of reference, a different point of view. We have to cultivate the ability to experience cognitive empathy, which means the ability to at least try on uh, the other guy's point of view and see what it feels like. Now, I will try on the notion of a flat earth. I don't think it's going to work for me based upon my understanding of physics and the universe. But nonetheless, you know, we've got to remain open-minded. When we lock in, we no longer engage this incredible gift of the prefrontal cortex that we've been given that has allowed us to make such incredible progress thus far. I think it's such a beautiful point. And the irony is that this is my second podcast recording today. And my last podcast guest, also a physician, had a very similar outlook that he felt in so many ways that we as a country, a nation, a world have gotten so off base in terms of being able to see both sides of an argument or a discussion. And I think it's really critical, you know, certainly when I went through my first undergraduate program, I was a poli-sci major and we used to have vigorous debates, but at the very end, we always came back to the same thing. We can agree to disagree. And sometimes someone else's opinion or belief will cause me to reconsider my own belief system. And that's not a bad thing. And, And I think it's really important for us to be in a position where we can see other people's perspectives and not just our own. I think that's a- We bring up a really good point, Cynthia. What you just said is that we should accept the idea that people will change their position on things. Somebody once wrote an interesting, not very flattering article about me in a national magazine saying that, you know, Dr. Perlmutter used to tell us that we shouldn't eat eggs and we should be on a very low fat diet. Did I say that? Yes, I absolutely did. That's what I was able to extract from the most well-respected, peer-reviewed studies that I could find. Argued against eggs because they had a lot of cholesterol, high-fat diet because, oh, if you ate fat, well, terrible things would happen. Your children would be born naked or who knows what. (laughs) And, you know, over time, have I changed my position on those dietary recommendations? You bet. And will I change my position moving forward? I certainly hope so, because if I do, it means that I'm keeping my ear to the ground. So we need to embrace the notion that our ideas are going to change with time and others should be appreciative of that fact as well, that we're given that opportunity, we're given that space to change our views. And that dynamic sort of approach to ideology, I think allows progress. If we lock in, and I think there's a tendency in practicing medicine to kind of lock into what you learn in your residency, and that's pretty much dogma for you. And I think that is a disservice to the people that you serve. You know, if you are going to practice for 30, 40 years and not be amenable to change, then, you know, the people that you're trying to help are not going to be able to benefit from that. So, you know, I want to get back to the notion that we can regain connection. We can offset disconnection syndrome. And, you know, it might well be that 
the idea that a patient who is seeing you with, let's say, diabetes and obesity is making very poor dietary choices. And it might well be then that the first time around with this individual, you actually don't make a dietary recommendation. But, you know, that's the biggest problem he or she and you may say. But it turns out that most likely that person knows the right information, has heard that right information from other healthcare providers for many, many years. So, you know, it's beating a dead horse. You're not going to make progress. We have to work on the decision-making apparatus first. We have to build that foundation and then layer in the top uh, floors. So it might be that first visit with this individual is, look, guess what? We're not going to even talk about a lower refined carbohydrate diet, more dietary fiber, maybe higher levels of good dietary fat. We'll get to that. But right now, I'm not going to recommend that you make any specific dietary changes. That will be surprising. Why did I even come? We're going to work on your decision-making so you can, when it's time, be in a better place, a better place to make better decisions and to stick to them. So what are we going to do? Well, how do you sleep? Why are you asking me that? Well, because again, we want to pull as many levers as we can to get you to a place of better decision-making. We're going to start with sleep or exercise or getting out in nature or meditation or keeping a gratitude journal, whatever. Let's start with sleep because you're overweight. Probably you're not sleeping well. Well, I sleep eight hours every single night. Okay, that's a good number. I can be comfortable with that. But what is the quality of your sleep? How will I know? I have no clue. I go to sleep at 10 and I wake up when I wake up. Great. But what we might know or learn rather is that while this individual may think that he or she is sleeping eight hours a night, which would be wonderful, they may not be getting restorative sleep. So while they're in bed, eyes closed for that period of time, they may wake up unrefreshed and in a situation that's increasing inflammation, therefore further disconnecting from the prefrontal cortex and threatening their ability to make good choices. So what do you have to do? We have to get a metric on the quality, not just the quantity, but the quality of that individual sleep. Now, they can go to a sleep lab and get wired in for oxygenation, brainwave activity, EKG, leg movements, all the things. I've done one of those studies. It's hard to imagine that it's fully valid because you're sleeping out of your home in a laboratory where somebody is watching you on a TV camera ostensibly all night long. It's very weird. Or you can wear a wearable device, which is what I do. Uh, I happen to wear a particular type of ring. And every morning I download information into my smartphone and says, David, you slept eight hours and 12 minutes. It took you 10 minutes to fall asleep. That doesn't normally happen. It's usually for me pretty quick. You had a total of what, certain length of sleep. And of that total, you spent two hours in REM sleep. You spent one hour and 13 minutes in deep sleep. And uh, your heart rate was, in my case, 48. Your level of heart rate variability was whatever it was. And therefore, we know we've got a great metric for this patient he or she thinks they slept a full night, but look what we found out. We found out that, matter of fact, they were awake four times during the night, though they may not have known it, that their heart rate uh, went up for some reason. What that is, we don't know. That they didn't really get any deep sleep almost to speak of, which is the time that your brain cleans itself up. And therefore, this individual is at great risk for inflammation threatening his or her decision-making. Wowzer. This is suddenly a tool that we have 
that we can then leverage moving forward to help this person make better decisions. So now what do we do? In this case, looking at sleep, we could look at other things, but this is a powerful on-ramp, as it were, to better decision-making. We would look at the quality of that person's sleep and ask ourselves, well, what can we do to address sleep hygiene in this person that might uh, abode well for a better night's sleep? Maybe have no more caffeine after 2 p.m. Maybe it's that you're on the computer at night in front of a blue light producing screen, reducing your melatonin, and therefore you don't sleep well. Maybe it's your partner who snores or has periodic leg movements or is up several times at night to urinate, whatever it may be. Maybe the room's not dark enough, quiet enough, or cold enough. There are a lot of variables that can be looked at, really offer a powerful tools to a better night's sleep. I choose sleep to start off with because it's so undervalued. You know, we don't exercise eight hours a day, or most of us don't anyway. We don't eat for eight hours a day. And yet, well, most of us don't. But yet, you know, exercise and eating get diet, get really the top rung in terms of our attention. But sleep is something we do for a third of our lives, eight hours, a third of the day. So we really need to pay attention to sleep. When we don't sleep well, then we threaten this connection. Even one night of non-restorative sleep, we talk about this in Brainwash, is associated with an up to 60% increased activity of the amygdala the impulsive decision maker. Stay up all night or most of the night. And what do you do the next day? You eat crap. We all know, we've all been there. I mean, you know, I was a resident and when we were up all night doing what we were doing, whether it was in the operating room or the emergency room, whatever it was, then first thing in the morning, I would go to the pediatric floor and eat baby food and steal it out of the refrigerator. The banana was my favorite because it's so high in sugar and you just crave sugar. You crave foods that are bad for you. People who chronically don't sleep well have an average increase in consumption of around 300 kilocalories per day. That adds up in 10 days to a pound of body fat. So you can see it doesn't take long to increase your weight. And when you increase your weight, what do you do? You sleep poorly. And what do you do then? You make worse dietary choices. So it's about looking at how we can reconnect to the prefrontal cortex and allow ourselves the gift of certainly better decision-making, but the gift of getting along, the gift of empathy, the gift of compassion, the gift of recognizing that our connectedness to others is totally important as it relates to our future survival on this planet. We have leveraged our prefrontal cortex to get us this far. We are very much social beings and therefore it allowed us to have, for example, division of labor, where some people do one thing, other people do another, and we were able to survive all of these hundreds of thousands of years. Now, our sense of needing connectedness has been a powerful hack into our brains by something called social media, whereby we have this sense of connectedness, therefore it becomes something that we think we want to do, and yet we recognize that our connectedness to the internet and to others through this uh, powerfully positive, potentially experience is leading to our loneliness, our poor decision-making, our lack of empathy. Uh, we know that you know, typically Americans spend 42% of their waking hours in front of one screen or another. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of upside for the internet. You know, it's this democratization of knowledge that has been so wonderful. 
But we know that when we spend in a lifetime 22 years in front of a screen, that you know, it's been said that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. We need to get out into nature. We need to exercise. We need to connect with other people as best we can without being virtual, if that's possible today, and it is. And again, there are upsides of the internet interaction. But you know, typically, our teenagers and young adults have 8.5 as an average social media accounts, which generally need to be serviced each day. Typically, teenagers to young adults spend three hours of their day on social media. And is there some upside to that? Yeah, I guess. That sort of is, you know, what isn't necessarily going to be positive in terms of your online experience. So frankly, I'm not sure what the original question was, but I'm hopeful that I covered it. No, you did. You did a beautiful job. And I there were so many things that you just said. I'm trying to make sure I acknowledge several specific things. Sleep is foundational to our health. And my listeners are probably completely humored because you touched on the fact that I mentioned consistently and probably more often than they would like to know, sleep is foundational to our health. So you want to control your blood sugar. You want to control your appetite. You want to control your weight. Talking about the glymphatic system, you know, this waste and recycling process in the brain that One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. 
It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. You know, requires so much energy and obviously you are the expert, but requires so much energy that we have to get good quality sleep. You know, spikes in human growth hormone which is an area of tremendous interest of mind. And, you know, then tying into the fact that we're increasingly exposed and trying to find balance to having electronic time, social media time, internet time. Over the last year, you know, we're in unprecedented times with this pandemic and people are not able to be as socialized as they would probably like to be. They're not traveling. People are trying to find ways to be connected And so how does, you know, this modern day pandemic, how has that impacted our brains? You know, I I hear some family members and loved ones who say, I just had to stop watching the news because it's stressing me out. I have other people saying it's the only way I can stay connected is to be on social media and to be watching the news. You know, how has this really impacted the way that we view the world and how we are impacting our health? Well, by and large, news is fear-inducing. It is threatening. Uh, We are told that we can't turn it off because pretty soon another shoe is going to drop, and we don't want to miss that because we have to stay informed so we can prepare. And I'm going to tell you, there is a lot going on around us, no question. There are a lot of threats out there that we should be aware of. But understand that the constant flow of that information into your brain does nothing more then strengthen the connection and the activity of the fear center. You know, it's been said that neurons that fire together wire together, meaning that the more we fan the flames of fear in our brains, the more those pathways and relationships of the fear center of the brain to other areas become more and more indelible. So it's good to be informed. You know, it's good to understand each day what's going on. Read a paper, spend 15 minutes, watch the news, get caught up. But the problem is that it is self-reinforcing because we are told that there's breaking news or we're in the situation room or alert flashes on the bottom screen. And who can not, who's going to want to turn that off? Because my life depends on knowing 
well, not just what the next bit of news is going to be, but certainly what that next commercial is all about. So the point is that it's great for revenue for broadcast news because they're selling their ads and I'm sure their revenues are skyrocketing right now. And, you know, we see the same sorts of pop-ups geared at your attention, by the way, that appear on your feed as, as you are surfing the internet. Again, get, don't get me wrong. I like to be informed. I think it's reasonable as it relates to pandemic. I read uh, several of the journal articles each and every day. That way I'm informed. That way I can do my best to inform other people as well, as well as make good decisions for myself and help others as well. But the constant barrage of the amygdala with fear-inspiring information makes the amygdala front and center, moves it to the front of the class and puts it in the position of being decision maker. We need the amygdala out of that role. We don't want to have the amygdala cause us to make impulsive decisions day in and day out, decisions that focus only on ourselves to the detriment of other people. We're a social being. We need to interact. We need to make decisions that are more forward thinking, that are more thought through. Not to say that the amygdala isn't important. There are times when we need a sudden non-thought through uh, type of decision. Let me give you an example. You're in your car, you're backing out of the driveway, your eye catches something in the backup camera. You're not even sure what it is, but you stepped on the brake. Instantly, you stop the car. Then you realize, oh, that was a kid on a tricycle behind the car. You didn't need, nor should you have wanted to process that information with your prefrontal cortex, thinking about it. What should I do? Maybe I should slow down, maybe hit the brake. So there's a time for call it reflex action, if you will, impulsive uh, response, if you will, which is good for us. But to respond impulsively when we see something negative on TV to want to attack somebody else because they don't share our viewpoint, you know, that's impulsivity that we need to stay away from. That's when we want to take a deep breath and say, you know, maybe that person has a point. We need to think about that. If you're watching news, it might be good to consider to watch a different network from time to time. I find watching a different network challenging, but my wife insists that we do it because it's good for us to see what other people are thinking because you know what? They may be right about something. Who knew? That's what reaching across the aisle is all about. Or as I said earlier, getting rid of the darn aisle in the first place. So again, a lot of negativity out there and we cannot let it rule our lives in terms of affecting us and to your point, affecting our actual brain wiring and affecting us when we are offline or the TV is off, that keeps smoldering, keeps us ruminating, and it affects our worldview as we then take a walk around the neighborhood or we interact with other people. We've changed people. You know, we've got to realize that where we're going may not be a good place. Absolutely. And, you know, I also think about the impact of being, you know, in this amygdala situation where you're sympathetic dominant and you're releasing a hormone that's not a bad hormone, but chronically high cortisol is not beneficial. And with a this ever-growing pandemic that we're in, we know that high cortisol over time actually impacts our immune function. And, and this is what I was trying to kind of weave into the conversation that you know, there are a lot of questions and concerns about how do I protect myself? How do I protect my immune function? And this is a way that I think is really important to reemphasize that we don't want our brains to be thinking we're under threat all the time because the negative downward effect 
not only inflammation, but also this immune function that can be, you know, diminished over time. I think what you just said is absolutely profound. And that is that I think it's not unreasonable to assume that the stress of this pandemic is worsening outcome. And it may be in some crazy way that this has been one of the permutations of the virus, that it induces stress. It has, and that has allowed it to propagate the way that it has. But again, to break it down, uh, stress via upregulation of cortisol through what we call the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis, cortisol does in fact uh, help the body deal with acute inflammation, but chronic elevation of cortisol increases inflammation through a variety of mechanisms by changing the type of organisms living within the gut to directly threatening the integrity of the gut lining that increases inflammation to actually changing the expression of various immune cells leading to increased production of inflammatory chemicals that we call cytokines. So, you know, this chronic elevation of inflammation brought on in this case by stress bodes poorly for outcome as it relates to getting this infection. And then how do you do in terms of how you'll, will you survive? Will you have that experience? Anything, in fact, that increases inflammation bodes poorly for outcome. For example, as was demonstrated early on in this experience, individuals who have inflammatory disorders like type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, obesity, have a significant increased risk of not doing well with this infection. It's been recognized then that we got to do everything we can now on the front end to keep people in a lower inflammatory state. What I'm saying is maybe easier to understand that we know people do poorly with COVID if they are immunocompromised individuals, like who've had chemotherapy, have an autoimmune type of condition, we say, and are on steroids. We say these individuals are at great risk because their immune systems have been compromised. But important to recognize that the immune system is compromised by age, obesity, diabetes, seen in conjunction with coronary artery disease, cancer. These are inflammatory immunocompromised situations. And by and large, the list includes issues for which our lifestyle choices play an important role. When we say that age is a risk factor for bad outcome as it relates to COVID, we should really more appropriately say biological age, not chronological age. And what do I mean by that? It's not the number of rings on the tree that really matter. It's the health of the tree despite the number of rings. So you can be 70 years old, but if you are in really good shape biologically, in other words, you have the physiology of a person who's 55, that's really the metric, I believe, that plays the biggest role in terms of your risk for bad outcome or good outcome as it relates to COVID-19 infection. So what we're getting at is, and you know, the corollary for that is, of course, that you can be 50 years old and have put yourself in a position with obesity, diabetes, or other issues that have aged your immune system dramatically, and therefore you're at risk for bad outcome. So it's important then to understand that this senescence, aging, if you will, of the immune system is front and center. It's getting the spotlight right now in terms of what a person's risk is in terms of this challenge. And the point is that our lifestyle choices factor heavily in terms of the aging or slowing of the aging 
of our immune system. What I'm saying then, the dots to connect are that the food we eat, the exercise we get or not, the amount of sleep that's restorative that we get or not, choices that we make play a huge role uh, in our risk for outcome, be it good or bad. I think it's such an important distinction for people to understand that there are things we can do to lessen the impact of if we were to contract this virus or any other you know, illness, there are things we can do now and in the future that can be very proactive. And so when we're thinking about, you know, you touched on sleep, which is absolutely foundational. You talked a little bit and touched on nature. And, and this is an area that I have personally really embraced during uh, social distancing because there's a lot of things we cannot do that we would like to do. And so my poor dogs, why well, don't say my poor dogs, I have two dogs and every day they get four or five miles worth of walking in our right. neighborhood. And so the whole concept of getting sunlight in the morning and getting out in nature has become one of the most enjoyable parts of my day. Uh, generally trying to drag my husband with me so that we get to have a private conversation because we have teenagers at home. That boy needs to get out there with you. Yes. <laughs> you tell him I said so. <laughs> So let's talk about the benefits of nature and how this, you know, has this profound positive impact on our brains. Certainly, uh, we dedicate, you know, a lot of the book to these ideas and certainly emphasize nature exposure. So, you know, it's actually a science now and that science developed in Japan with the early research demonstrating that forest bathing as it is called there really has some powerful effects on the immune system, on lowering cortisol, on even things like blood pressure. Who knew? That simple exposure to nature for 20, even 20 minutes is a very powerful tonic. Lowering inflammation, that's our goal in terms of reconnection of the brain to the prefrontal cortex. But, you know, the studies are demonstrating now that even for people who live in a very urban environment, if they can get out to a place in their busy area that has a few trees, it's very powerful in terms of lowering cortisol. We have uh, technology now that allows researchers to measure what's called a salivary cortisol level. Basically, you spit into a tube, they take it back to the lab and they can measure it. And going from your home to the place of nature is demonstrated with lowering of that stress hormone that you brought up earlier as being you know, so threatening when it's constantly elevated. So it might be that people say, well, I can't get out right now. It's too busy. It's too cold, whatever it may be. And you can achieve these benefits from nature exposure by having photographs or paintings of natural environments on your walls or having some houseplants or have an herb garden in your kitchen where you have dill and coriander and other types of leaves come from a tree one of my favorites. But whatever it may be, garlic that you want to grow, you're able to do that. And that is Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification, 
and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Rewarding, you're connecting with nature, but it's giving you a heck of a lot of benefits. Lowering inflammation, lowering cortisol, balancing immune function. Now, to your point about getting your husband and your dogs in the morning, the sunlight part of that story, really important, helping to you to adapt to the day-night cycle, light-dark cycle, you know, that sunlight's coming through your eyeballs into your retinas, stimulating an area of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, that'll be on the quiz. And ultimately, it is allowing your body to say, hey, it's daytime, I should be doing certain things your body gears up for certain things that happen during the daytime, like, for example, digesting your food. That shouldn't be happening to any significant degree uh, once we've gone to bed. Melatonin is inhibited. And then once it gets dark, melatonin is brought on board, helps you fall asleep. And so that is really very, very important. And hopefully, you know, you said four to five miles. That's as a brisk walk, that's significant. You know, that's, I don't know what your pace is, but that's wonderful. I mean, just getting out, regardless of your pace, if you're walking four miles with your dogs and your husband, that is wonderful. Now, to the topic of exercise, I would simply say that if you really want to dedicate to it, 
and you're out walking or jogging or on the elliptical machine or biking, you really want to maybe add a little science into it if you want to get the most out of it. And that is to look at what would be a target heart rate for each individual. Uh, that's based upon your fitness. It's based upon your age, et cetera. So you need to determine what that might be. As a very, very broad recommendation, we recommend a heart rate of 180 minus your age. You know, it's a very crude place to start, but you know, some people are on drugs, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, their heart rate is going to be slower. Other people have a naturally higher heart rate, but you know, with time, you'll learn what a heart rate for you seems to be getting you to a place where you're huffing and puffing a bit, but you can still carry on a conversation. That's the sweet spot. Now, what are you doing? You're reducing cortisol, ultimately. You're balancing your immune system. You're reducing inflammation. Uh, you're also increasing your body's production of something wonderful for your brain called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that tells your brain to make more brain cells. Now, who wouldn't want that? I mean, so it's all about getting into a target zone. Now, some people might want to take it further and reach a certain target zone for a two-minute period of time and then recover. That's called high-intensity interval training. Also very, very powerful in terms of the science behind that, in terms of what it can do for you. But we shouldn't underestimate how important exercise is, and it really needs to be what a person is comfortable doing. And when I say comfortable, you know, the important point here is to get to a level that it's not perfectly comfortable. And what's perfectly comfortable? Uh, probably laying on a lounge chair with a tall drink with a little umbrella in it and uh, sunglasses and, you know, hanging out. That's comfortable. Good to be a little uncomfortable. Good to stress our bodies, whether it's by restricting the amount of food that we eat or fasting a given day or two or involving ourselves in what's called time-restricted eating where by we don't eat through most of the day and begin to eat during a six-hour window. Lots to discuss if we had time. But the point I'm making is a little bit of stress for the body is a good thing. And uh, ultimately, we have to identify what is that sweet spot whereby we do some exercise, not too much and not too little. It's the Goldilocks zone in terms of exercise, in terms of what we eat, in terms of sleep, in terms of all the things that we look at with reference to our lifestyle choices. Such important points. And I want to be really mindful of your time, but I definitely want to end talking a little bit. If you could think of three foods that you feel are most beneficial for the brain in terms of keeping the amygdala at bay, if you will, and really servicing the executive functioning in the prefrontal cortex, what would they be? First would be exercise. I'm the guest, I get to say that, but I know you said food, but you know, it's so important. You know, you can't exercise away a crappy diet, but specific foods, and that'll change with time. I would probably put broccoli sprouts on the top of the list, organic broccoli sprouts, chew them thoroughly, activate the glucoraphanin using the, when you chew it, the myrosinase enzyme to create sulforaphane. Man, oh man, I cannot imagine a more powerful superfood. The next would be any source of an omega-3 called DHA. Now that could be vegetarian. It can come from marine algae. It can come from, if you're not vegetarian, from fish or fish oil. I think that would have to be a superfood. And the next thing uh, would be, I think, a broad category of prebiotic fiber. 
and that is to nurture your gut bacteria who play a fundamental role in keeping us healthy, keeping us from becoming uh, senescent, allowing our immune systems to be a wonderfully adaptive, keeping us in a good state of mind, managing our gut lining, uh, helping to reduce stress. A lot of things our gut bacteria do are helping us deal with stress. So I would say prebiotic fiber uh, would be the third important food. And that can be from garlic, onions, leeks, jicama, which is one of my favorite foods, Mexican yam, Jerusalem artichoke, chicory. You know, most vegetables have some degree of prebiotic fiber. As a supplement, I like prebiotic fiber that comes from acacia gum and baobab fruit. The acacia tree is that big shade tree that you see the giraffes in Africa chewing with, uh, you know, during the midday, they're getting shade and, and having lunch. So I think that we should consider prebiotic fiber to be, you know, a macronutrient, so desperately important. We can't really do that because it's basically, you know, a carbohydrate, so it falls in that category. But I think anything I can do to raise people's awareness of the importance of prebiotic fiber uh, would be a good goal to achieve. Again, broccoli sprouts. Wow, what a powerful superfood. Well, that was absolutely wonderful. I'll definitely have to have you back. What are you working on right now? Well, right now, throw your curveball. I'm working on the <laughs> oven. I'm trying to replace a uh, one of the heater uh, things, uh, element in the oven. Uh, you didn't. That's not what you were looking for. I have a new book that we are working on right now, uh, which deals with fructose and uh, its connection to uric acid and how that plays a profound role in the way that fructose is such a threat to human health. And so uh, that book will be coming out next year. Yeah, it'll be coming out in the spring of 2022. And that's taking a, a lot of time. We're doing a lot of obvious work now in terms of cultivating the research, culling the research, and working on doing my very best to make hay while the sun shines. And I think uh, there's a tendency to kind of involute right now because the world has changed so much. Every day is sacred, and I would encourage everybody to recognize that we each get a finite number of days, so to squander them away because you know things are, are a little bit uh, disturbed right now. You know We can achieve some great stuff right now. Wonderful. Well, let my listeners know what's the easiest way to connect with you online, on your website, your preferred you know social media channels. Well, Facebook, Instagram. Facebook is David Perlmutter, MD. Instagram, I think is David Perlmutter, or maybe David Perlmutter, MD. I think the, probably the best place is to go to drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. My books are, they're around the world. I don't, uh, for people who are watching, we're in 34 languages now, uh, available in bookstores around and on online, of course. And I'd say those are the best channels. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on, Dr. Perlmutter. Cynthia, thank you for having me. I hope you have a terrific day. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality.
Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 